Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jeff, if you'll come up, I'll pray for you. Father, as we look back on the last few weeks and just what's happening in our world, there are a lot who are weary and heavy laden and who need rest. Father, thank you for being that rest. Thank you for your son. I pray you would just be with Jeff as he um, just speaks from your word and from his heart. And I pray that you would um, open our ears to hear what he has to say. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Good morning. Um, It's good to be with you again this morning. If you follow Karis Church on the Gram or the Facebook, you probably saw this post earlier in the week that read, Prayers for Healing, New Preachers, Baptism, Welcoming New Family Members, and Sending Off More Partners Across the Globe. Praise God for His great gifts to us in this season at Karis. And then it had pictures of uh, Benga here preaching his first sermon uh, last month in Karis. A picture of author and guest preacher Patrick Schreiner, a picture of our newest family members lined up here. Well, you know, not newest now since Jordan was just up here, but all the, all the our names, Rachel, Rachel, and the Roberts and Rice families, a picture of the Reese family just before they left for Uganda, a picture of Zach's baptism, and a picture of a group of people surrounding and praying over Tyler just before his surgery. It's been so encouraging to see the Lord at work in our body. And those are just the things that have happened here in the gathering on Sundays, right? That doesn't even include the things that God is up to in and through you, in and through us, in the whole rest of the week. We really do have so many reasons to praise. And at the same time, I know there are many in our midst whose reasons to praise are overshadowed by dark realities of life in a world marred by sin. Broken relationships, physical and mental health struggles, ever-present financial worries, deep grief and sorrow, the loss of a loved one, mounting stress at work, feelings of failure at home, expectations at school, the death of hopes and dreams, repeated battles with sin, If that's you this morning, then you're in good company, and I'm really glad you're here. And even more, I believe Jesus is glad you're here, and I trust that he wants to encourage our hearts this morning through his word. There's this paradox we experience in life where it's often like our hurt and our failings and our struggles that either cloud us from seeing clatter our hearts and our minds and keep us from seeing God clearly, or they keep us from going to God at all. But like our passage will show us, it's precisely in those things through the clouds that Jesus pursues us and invites us in. 
I've been on the, the road quite a bit the last couple of years for work, and my drive times are usually like early mornings and then in the evenings. And so depending on the season, uh, I get to see the sunrise and the sunset on a lot of days. And I love a good sunrise or a good sunset. I mean, just the fact that the sun rises every morning is incredible grace from God, right? It speaks to his creative majesty and his sustaining power. Every sunrise and every sunset is glorious because God makes it happen. But there are some days when the sky, it just glows, right? You know what I'm talking about. When, with bright reds and purples and oranges and pinks, and it is, it's extra glorious, extraordinarily glorious. Do you know one of the ways that you can tell how you can anticipate if the colors of a sunrise or a sunset are going to be ordinary or extraordinary? It's clouds. I love a sunny day with clear skies, but clear skies don't make for extraordinary sunsets. It's not the absence of clouds that makes the sunrise extraordinary. It's the presence of clouds. And so, friend, if you survey your life and you see some clouds, places of deep hurt and struggle, failure, unrealized hopes and dreams, unceasing pressures, Jesus wants to encourage you this morning. Those things can cloud the light of the sun, but God intends those things to make his rest and his peace, and his joy, and rescue even sweeter to you than if they weren't there. The rest Jesus offers is all the sweeter as the light of the sun touches and reflects off every cloud in your life. This morning we'll see how in a world where the confident and the self-assured are elevated and platformed, Jesus moves toward the childlike, the weak, the looked over, the ones uncertain but open to hearing and learning. In a world where supposedly many ways exist to God, Jesus declares he is the exclusive path. In a world where our striving to please God leaves us tired and weary, Jesus offers his yoke of rest. When we're weighed down and burdened by life in a fallen world, Jesus invites us to come to him to find hope and help. And the main point of The sermon this morning is Jesus reveals the Father by inviting us into relationship and rest. Jesus reveals the Father by inviting us into relationship and rest. And as we walk through our passage, we're going to ask three questions, okay? Three questions, and then we'll close with three points of application. And those three questions are, who is the Father revealed to? Who does the revealing, and how does the Son reveal the Father? So first, who is the Father revealed to? Look with me again at verses 25 through 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. If you've missed either of the last two sermons in, from Matthew 11, I encourage you this week, go back online, take a listen. Matthew situates our passage this morning right on the heels of Jesus denouncing cities who refused to repent in the face of his teaching and his mighty works. And then here in our passage, Matthew, he gives us a glimpse of the inner dialogue between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. 
as Jesus praises God for hiding these things, these things meaning the the mighty works of Jesus, the, the content of his teaching and the ushering in of the new kingdom of the Messiah, these things from the wise and understanding. Now, Imagine yourself, you're at work or um, you're with some friends and there's this conversation going on where two groups of people are being talked about, right? Those who are wise and understanding and those who are more like children. Who would you rather be identified with? How would you rather be described? Well, I think I'd probably rather be described as wise and understanding and I'm guessing most of you would as well. But if we're honest with ourselves, at, at some level, our desire to be well thought of, to be intelligent, it betrays our self-sufficiency and pride. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. Is Jesus saying it's bad or, or maybe even worse, spiritually deadly to be wise and understanding? Well, yes and no. Right? On, on the one hand, there's this whole section of Scripture known as wisdom literature. Right? We have Job and the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. I mean, listen to Proverbs 2, the first several verses of Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So clearly, there's a kind of wisdom and understanding that's from God and honors God. What kind of wisdom and understanding is Jesus talking about then here in Matthew 11? Well, remember, this comes directly after last week's passage where Jesus pronounces judgment on whole cities for missing who was in their midst. Look at Matthew 11, verse 20. And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. There were many who heard Jesus' teachings, who saw his mighty works and were unmoved too wise in their own eyes to see the long-promised Messiah right in front of them. And then there were the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, who knew the Scriptures, who should have been the first ones to recognize the Messiah in their midst, but they're too proud in their own understanding. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Jesus praises the Father for hiding these things from those who were wise and understanding in their own eyes. And he praises God for revealing these things to little children. He's not referring there to age or to size, but to openness, to hear and receive. Little children, those who who don't have it all figured out, those who know they need help, as, as commentator R.T. France put it, those who are free from false preconceptions and so are open to the new light now being revealed to them. So to answer our first question, who is the Father revealed to? The Father is revealed to the childlike, the ones open to his revelation. This is like one time in life where it's actually 
a good thing to be known as childish. So let's move on to our second question. Who does the revealing? Right? Who does the revealing? Look with me again at verse 27. All things have been handed over to be by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, he foreshadows his post-resurrection commission at the end of Matthew, right? Matthew 28, starting in 18. And Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he goes on, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All things, as in the knowledge and the authority to carry out the Father's gracious will of revealing the Father to little children. Now, if, if you've been around Karis long enough to remember our sermon series through John's gospel, or if you just know your Bibles well, this verse, Matthew eleven twenty seven, it sounds a lot like John's gospel, right? Jesus makes an astonishing claim here. Only the Father knows the Son, and only the Son knows the Father. The Father and the Son have intimate and exclusive knowledge of one another. We've seen this idea of knowing someone in in other passages in Matthew's gospel. To, To know, it goes way beyond just mere acknowledgement of true things. It speaks to intimate, experienced knowledge of the other. Only the Son knows the Father and anyone the Son reveals him to. This is an astonishing claim. In line with John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to know God is through Jesus. Don't gloss over this. It's as if the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, is saying, I'm not just sending a prophet to tell you about me, though I've done that. I'm not just instructing you to to find me in the created world, though I do reveal my glory and nature through creation. No, I love the world so much, I'm sending my beloved Son to you, God the Son in human flesh, to bring you to me. This is unlike every other major religion in the world. It's, It's popular to say something like, all roads lead to God. Right? Or all types of belief eventually, in the end, get to the same, basically the same God. I heard David Platt um, tell about how he sometimes shares the gospel with those who have had very little access or sp- exposure to Christianity. And he recounts you know, saying something like, the major world religions work like this. Imagine God is at the top of the mountain and you're at the bottom. There are a lot of paths that you can take, a lot of different routes to get to the top of the mountain, mountain, but they all lead to the same God at the top of the mountain if you can make it there on your own. But Christianity is far different. In Christianity, God is at the top of the mountain and he looks down on humans at the bottom and he sees our inability to make it up the mountain ourselves. And so in love, God comes down in the person of Jesus. He picks us up and he carries us up the mountain himself. That's the good news of the gospel of grace. Jesus is the only way to the Father. This is what is meant when we use the term the exclusivity of the gospel. 
Jesus is the only way. So to answer our question, who does the revealing? Jesus. God the Son does the revealing. He is the exclusive path to knowing God. He is the one who reveals the Father to humans in the world. Now, before we move on to the third question, I want to address um, one, one other thing that we see here. In addition to the exclusivity of the gospel, this passage brings up another somewhat delicate issue. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's in the passage, so I think it needs to be addressed. And it's this, the sovereignty of God in salvation. According to our passage, the Father conceals and Jesus reveals the Father to some and not others. Why? How, how is that fair? How is that loving? What about human choice? Is Jesus saying God controls it all and we're really just robots so it doesn't really matter? I can't answer all the questions this morning. I mean, entire books have been written about this. I'm going to give you about 300 words, okay? But consider two things here briefly. First, it's not like Jesus is concealing the Father from morally neutral humans who really want to know him. There actually are no morally neutral humans in the world. Only humans who have rebelled against God and stand guilty before him. All of humanity is equally damned because of sin. As D.A. Carson says, it's not an, an act of injustice for God to conceal these things from those who think they don't need him. That's not injustice, it's judgment. Listen to Carson on this. Uh, this is kind of, kind of heady, so just stick with me. Jesus' balance mirrored the balance of Scripture. He could simultaneously denounce the cities that did not repent and praise the God who does not reveal. For God's sovereignty and election is not mitigated by man's stubbornness and sin, while man's responsibility is in no way diminished by God's good pleasure that sovereignly reveals and conceals. Because we believe the Bible... We can't say it's only one or the other, right? We can't say God is sovereign, so man has no responsibility. And we can't say that God doesn't initiate, God doesn't choose, so it's all on us to, to make the first move. No, the, the Bible holds these two things in tension, and, and so should we. God is sovereign in salvation, and humans are responsible for what they do with Jesus, we won't figure out every nuance to this on this side of eternity, but we can, like Jesus, rejoice in the mercy of God. We can praise the Father. Like, what mercy that God has chosen to reveal himself to any in a rebellious world at all. So that's the first thing. And second, right on the heels of Jesus praising the Father for both concealing from some and then saying that he reveals to others and making what sounds like a narrow statement about who will be saved. Catch this. Jesus throws his arms wide open and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And that leads right into our third question. How does the son reveal the father? How? 
How does the Son reveal the Father? Look with me again at verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Son reveals the Father by opening wide his arms and saying to the world, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Son reveals the Father by inviting us into relationship and rest. Jesus says, come to me, right? He isn't just a prophet. He's not a forerunner pointing to some other way to get to God. He is the way. And he doesn't even just encourage us to to say like, hey, go to God and find rest. He says, come to me. He is God. Come to me and find rest. Jesus invites us into relationship with him and the Father. Now notice who Jesus extends the invitation to. He says, come to me all who labor, right? Those who have been striving, working hard to please God, but constantly coming up short. Come to me all who labor. And then he says, come to me all who are heavy laden, burdened, crushed by the weight of others, demands and expectations. Jesus moves with compassion and open arms toward the striving and the burdened. He moves toward the hurting and the way down and offers them rest and a new way of living. Now, compare that, compare Jesus' invitation here with the way the leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees is described in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. Speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The law wasn't intended by God to be burdensome to his people, but for generations, the religious leaders had added to God's law hundreds of their own binding interpretations so that it was impossible to live and please God. Even if someone was miraculously able to follow the law perfectly, they would still be crushed by all of the arbitrary demands the Pharisees had added on top of it over the years. The scribes and the Pharisees led by laying added burdens on God's people. Jesus leads by carrying the burden for us all the way to the cross to offer us rest and a new way to live, one that's easy and light. This is one of those places in Scripture that it paints a picture of the gospel. It paints a picture of salvation without using all of the words that we can normally use to accompany that topic, right? There's no mention of the word sin or repentance or faith or trust or the cross here. But this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus the, the one with sole authority to reveal the Father to people says, come to me. I know you're weary. I know you're tired. I know you're worn out by your own striving to please God and by the heavy burdens that have been laid on you. But if you'll just simply come to me with childlike trust, I will give you rest. I will give you eternal rest from all of your striving to please God because I've already done that perfectly. 
Jesus offered gospel rest to all who would come to him, and he offers that same rest even now today. So Jesus says, come to me. And then in verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. We don't live in an agrarian society like the first century Greco-Roman world, so I'm guessing not many of us have witnessed you know, an actual yoke in action. But a yoke was this you know, wooden implement, usually worn by animals like oxen, sometimes individually or in pairs. It, it was something that enabled them to carry or pull heavy loads. It made burdens easy to carry. The yoke of the law had become oppressive for God's people with all of the legalistic demands that had been added to it. So Jesus came to offer a new yoke. We've seen him doing this kind of thing all throughout Matthew's gospel, right? Jesus is ushering in a new kind of kingdom, a radically different paradigm for his people. He's offering a new yoke that's easy and light, which doesn't mean that the new yoke removes any responsibility for us to obey God's commands. As, as R.T. France writes, Jesus' yoke is easy not because it makes lighter demands. I think we could argue, even from earlier in Matthew's gospel, it makes higher demands of his followers. Jesus' yoke is easy not because it makes lighter demands, but because it represents entering into a disciple relationship with one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus doesn't just offer us a new set of rules to obey to get to God. He offers us relationship to himself, relationship with one who is gentle and lowly. Here in verse 29, we see really the the only time in Scripture that Jesus describes his own heart towards sinners. It tells us about his posture, his countenance toward you and I. He is gentle and lowly. And so I wonder, when, when you picture God in your mind, what is his countenance toward you? What is the expression on his face? Is it a smile? Is it gladness in his eyes as he looks at you? Or does it look like disgust? Does it look like disappointment on his face? The countenance that you envision on the Lord's face as he looks at you reveals a lot about how you relate to God. Listen to how Dane Ortland describes Jesus as gentle and lowly in his book by the same title. This is not who he is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who come to him, who take his yoke upon them, who cry to him for help. The paragraph before these words from Jesus gives us a picture of how Jesus handles the impenitent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Gentle and lowly does not mean mushy, and frothy. But for the penitent, his heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. For lowly, gentle, for lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts toward, toward others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. 
He can't ungentle himself toward his own any more than you or I can change our own eye color. Let us marvel that the king, high and holy, is also the king, gentle and lowly. He doesn't come with condemnation toward his own. He doesn't wag his finger and say, get it right. Do better next time. He says, come to me. I am gentle and lowly, and I will give you rest. Brother, sister, he takes great delight in you. Even in your failings, he comes to you with open arms and gentle face. So how does that, that rest come to us, right? How is that rest experienced? Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. I mean, for real, when pressure at work is so like, palpable, so real, it, it literally feels like weight on your shoulders. Or in the throes of one of your children just losing their minds. Or when you keep failing to live up to God's commands, how, how is that rest experienced? Well, it's important to remember what Jesus says. Again, look, look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus offers rest for your soul, not necessarily rest for your body. Jesus promises rest, not rescue from your circumstance. Sometimes his rest does does look like that, but that's not what's promised here. As As it relates to how we experience rest, I think we can say these things. Rest comes when you trust Jesus, when you believe the gospel. At the moment of salvation, Jesus ushers you into eternal rest. Never again will you have to worry if you're striving to please God is enough because Jesus is enough on your behalf. So from that moment of initial trust into all eternity, the Father's love is fully yours. Rest comes to you when you trust Jesus. Rest comes with a change of perspective. I'm sure like a lot of you have experienced this, like just in a seemingly in a moment, sometimes right in the middle of like in a really intense or trying situation, something shifts in your heart and your mind. And even though nothing has changed externally, you feel a peace that you can't explain, right? When you take on the yoke of Jesus, you see him and you see yourself and the situation more clearly. You can take a, a, take a step back and rest in Jesus. Rest comes from a change of perspective. Rest also comes when we give up control. A lot of our striving in life is really a futile attempt to gain or retain control over someone or some situation. Jesus invites you to give up control and to find rest in him because he's the one that's in control. Rest comes when we give up control. Rest comes when we say no. Sometimes we're carrying a load that's not ours to carry. It's either a load that Jesus is meant to carry or it's a load that like some other person in your life 
is that's, that's theirs to bear, right? Sometimes the best thing we can do is to say no and relieve ourselves of that pressure. Rest comes when we say no. Rest comes when we ask for help. This is hard for all of us. I don't know, it's hard for me, so I'm assuming it's hard for all of us. Maybe not. When we're too proud to ask for help from others, we're really actually too proud to receive any help from Jesus. Rest comes when we ask for help. Rest comes when we turn to Jesus and not some lesser thing. Like when we find ourselves like in just really weary and burdened by something in life, in those moments, we're tempted to medicate with other things. Food, drink, sex, Netflix, some pet sin. But those things will never provide true rest. Rest comes when we turn to Jesus and not lesser things. Jesus never says our lives will be easy, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So go to him. So our third question, how does the son reveal the father? The son reveals the father by inviting us into relationship and rest. I want to close with three points of application. And I understand it may seem counterintuitive when I've talked about finding rest in Jesus to now talk about a list of three things that we need to do. But hear me out. In this passage, Jesus gives us three things that we're to do in order to experience his rest. Now, we have to guard against going back to our old ways of obeying to earn God's favor and approval. Keep in mind, the new kingdom paradigm that Jesus brings, it's an obedience that leads to and feels like rest. So, three points of application come right out of uh, verses 28 and 29. The first, come to me, repent. At a foundational level, responding to Jesus' invitation takes an acknowledgement of who Jesus truly is and humility to see who we truly are. This Jesus is, is one who both pronounces judgment on whole cities because of their unbelief and the one who is gentle and lowly toward those who come to him. There really is no middle ground. You're either united with Christ or you're not. You either experience the just eternal judgment of God or the open arms of a gentle and lowly king. Jesus is both high and holy and gentle and lowly, and he's the only way to God. Listen to David Platt on this idea. Are you really saying there's only one way to God? People immediately ask. Yet even as we ask the question, we reveal the problem. If there were 1,000 ways to God, we would want 1,001. The issue is not how many ways lead to God. The issue is our autonomy before God. We want to make our own way. This is the essence of sin in the first place, trusting our way more than God's. And so this morning, to those of you who are here who don't yet follow Jesus, will you go to him? Will you renounce your attempts at making your own way? Will you turn from your sin to trust and follow the gentle and lowly king? That's what it means to repent. Go to Jesus for salvation, friend. 
And for those here who already have repented in salvation, now for the rest of your life on earth as a follower of Jesus, when you feel weary and burdened, go to him. Those, like being weary and burdened are realities that we won't be able to escape in this life. So let those moments of despair and deep burden just serve as like warning lights, road signs that point you to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, so repent. Second, put on my yoke, surrender. The yoke of Jesus unites you to him. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, it's an invitation into intimate discipleship. It means coming to Jesus with bended knee and open hands, allowing him to reorient your entire life around him and his purposes in the world. It means surrender in every area. Picture being in a yoke with Jesus. You're either going in lockstep with him or you're fighting against his lead. So a question for you to wrestle with is, in what areas of your life are you fighting against Jesus? What things still need to be yielded to him? What are you holding back from him? Real rest will only be found in surrender to Jesus. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, so surrender. And last, third, learn from me, listen. Learning from Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. Think of this like continuing education, right? Doctors go through years of school and residency, but even after all of that, they still don't know everything there is to know about the human body and how to treat it. Much love to all the doctors in the room. That's why they do continuing education, to continue building on the knowledge and the skills that they already have. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the maturity, the maturity that you'll need to navigate the clouds of life well that you're going to experience five years from now, ten years down the road, that maturity will only be built over years of walking with and learning from Jesus. So what are you doing to listen and learn from Jesus? All of us consume a lot of information throughout the day. Does the amount of time that you spend listening to Jesus in his word and prayer make sense compared to the amount of time you spend consuming other media? If you need help knowing how to get started in this or you're just stuck in a rut when it comes to reading the Bible and prayer, pick up one of the field guides for private worship on your way out. They're, a re- they're on the resource table right out there. They're free. Jesus says, learn from me. So give yourself to listening to him. Now, I know I said I was going to close with these three points of application, but I've got a timer here. We still have a few minutes. So I want to add a little postscript here at the end, right? So P.S., Entering into relationship and rest with Jesus is not only an individual activity, it's a family effort. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Consider this. If if you are yoked to Jesus and I am yoked to Jesus, wouldn't it also imply that in some way, 
you and I are yoked together. And if we're yoked together in some way, doesn't it make sense that we'll have a part to play in bearing one another's burdens? Listen, for the college student who's away from their family and has two midterms, a paper, and an off-campus job to juggle, rest may look like you inviting them over for lunch after the gathering or some evening this week. Rest may look like someone being like mom or dad or older brother or sister that's not here to love them and offer them a meal. For the parent who feels like a prisoner in their own home because their little darling 18-month-old isn't sleeping well and throwing fits or fill in the blank with any other child scenario, rest for them may look like you going over to spend time with their baby so they can have a moment to breathe a chance to go for a walk and on the trail and let the Lord refresh them and reframe their perspective. For the employee who's just running hard to make a deadline or get ready for a big event and keep things going at home at the same time, rest for them may look like you taking them coffee at the office or dropping off a meal at their house the night before that big deadline or event. Making it through our lives connected to and resting in Jesus is both an individual and family effort. Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us by inviting us in to relationship and rest. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word that teaches us, that that leads us to truths about Jesus. Father, I pray in these moments that by your spirit, you will meet with us, that you would open our eyes to see ways that we're not resting in you, or we're still trying to go things, do things on our own, do it our own way. Lead us to real repentance. Thank you, Jesus, for being gentle and lowly, for coming to us with open arms pray, Father, that you would encourage hearts in very specific ways this morning to look to you, to to keep going. God, would you empower us? Thank you, Jesus, for, for your life, for your death, and for your reign now and forever. We pray it in your name. Amen.